say before I start, uh, I want to read a scripture, and, which I think is somewhat relevant, pertinent to what our considerations are for this issue. All right, and this is one of my favorite psalms. It's Psalm 90. Lord, thou hast been our refuge from one generation to another. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever the earth and the world were made, thou art God from everlasting and world without end. Thou turnest man to destruction. Again thou sayest, Come again, ye children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday, seeing that it is past as a watch in the night. As soon as thou scatterest them, they are even as asleep and fade away suddenly like the grass. In the morning it is green and groweth up, but in the evening it is cut down and dried up and withered. For we consume away in thy displeasure and are afraid at thy wrathful indignation. Thou hast set aside our misdeeds before thee and our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. For when thou art angry, all our days are gone. We bring our years to an end, as it were a tale that is told. The days of our age are threescore years and ten, and though men be so strong that they come to fourscore years, yet is their strength then but labor and sorrow, as soon passeth away and we are gone. But who regardeth the power of thy wrath? For even thereafter as a man feareth, so is thy displeasure. So, teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Turn thee again, O Lord, at the last, and be gracious unto thy servants. O satisfy us with thy mercy, and that soon. So shall we rejoice and be glad all the days of our life. Comfort us again now, after the time that thou hast plagued us, and for the years wherein we have suffered adversity. Show thy servants thy work, and their children thy glory. And the glorious majesty of the Lord our God be upon us. Prosper thou the work of our hands upon us. O prosper thou our handiwork. Amen. That's Psalm 90. All right. Uh, thank you for being here this evening. I, I feel somewhat flattered that you chose me over the bishop. But I, uh, maybe my topic might be a little more pertinent or relevant uh, to what we're all concerned with, and that is these uh, end-of-life issues. I will review a little bit what I said last Sunday, but today I'm going to primarily talk about the end-of-life issue called euthanasia, which uh, we all have, either we have deal, dealt with it or we most likely will deal with it in one way or another in our families. And then I'll be back for two more Sundays and I'll pick up some other issues and we'll talk about what's called death with dignity and then talk some about, um, maybe some about medical resources allocated for the end of life and then physician-assisted suicide. But today I want to talk about uh, euthanasia. Okay, what I did last Sunday was to contrast two basic ways of thinking about ethics and One of them I called, just for a simplistic title, a popular non-religious ethic, that it sees that the aim of life is personal freedom and happiness, 
this is what we all should seek. Everything is judged relative to whether it promotes your freedom and your happiness. And to gain such, you have to have certain virtues or certain sort of characteristics about you. And that would be control and management over your life. You're at your best when you are in control of your life, when you manage your life to be able to experience as much happiness and as much freedom as possible. That's a very plausible view. I think most of our society is committed to this view. It goes under all kinds of names, but I call it the popular non-religious ethic. Now, Christian ethic is always based on an entirely different kind of concept about what is the aim of our life. We in the church, you know, we do not create good and evil. God has created that for us. That knowledge is already given to us by what God is. We inherit a moral life. The church here represents a great legacy of trying to be faithful to the commands, the promises that God has given us. Our task then is to perpetuate this great legacy of the moral life that is shaped by God's grace, God's promises, God's love towards us. And with that said, as I look at it, the aim of life for the Christian is to experience God's holiness, to sense God's presence in everything that we do, and to glorify God because of that. Well, in that we are to love our neighbor, love God. We see life as a gift, both now and eternal life. One of the great things about the Apostles' Creed, which is said in the 9 o'clock service and uh, in the, um, the communion service, the Nicene Creed emphasizes both of these things. That is, we believe in the resurrection of the body. We believe that death does not end our existence, that our destinies are not concluded with our physical death, but it is a means towards experiencing God for eternity. This is part of our faith. So we see all this as a gift. I didn't ask to come into this world. I didn't generate it myself. My consciousness, my soul was given to me as a gracious act of God. And that will be true for eternity as well. We believe this. And then finally, the fourth characteristic is that the Christian ethic is designed not just for me on how I become a good person. In fact, if you remember this, uh, when the uh, uh, young lawyer comes up to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, oh, good master. And Jesus stops him right there and says, uh, don't call me good. No one is good but God alone. Ethics is not about you becoming a good person. Now, that may be true in the sort of the popular non-religious view, but for, the, for, for Christian ethics, the whole point is how can I act in a way that witnesses of the goodness of God? Now, how I become perfect or uh, morally without any kind of conflicts or blemishes become flawless, that's not the goal of my life. The goal of my life is to give glory to God. And so the church here is the community of people that is shaped by the great gifts that God has given us, defined by the holiness of God that we experience in our life, and we give testimony to that. All right. So that's a little of what I did last Sunday. All right. With that then, I want to start talking about euthanasia. This is a reference to this book. Come, Let Us Play God, 1969. Yes, I have that. Uh, he's actually not uh, in healthcare. He's a biophysicist. Uh, I'm not sure if he's still alive or not, but I remember this book uh, was such a um, uh, sort of provocative book because it has sort of an implied indictment against medicine that all doctors, and there are a few doctors here in the room, uh, are actually trying to play God. But that's not his point. He's actually got a very subtle and interesting point to make. He says all of us are forced into decisions in which we, in a sense, play God. And the reason why 
is that we have to deal with this issue. He writes this book trying to look at issues from, as he says, body parts, mind manipulators, awareness lucifiers, lucidifiers, dying, what to do with abortion, chemical emotions, and so on. A lot of specific issues that in each of these we are faced with two big questions. And these are the two big questions that God, in a sense, provides us answers. But we have to weigh, we have to find ways to apply those. And that is, what does it mean to be a person? What does that mean? And then secondly, why are we here? What's the meaning of our life? Do we have destinies to which we're responsible and that we have to try to maximize and realize in our lives? Who are we and why are we here? Well, what he argues, that is Augenstein, is that those are big questions. These are the questions that we need help from God. And so in a sense, yes, we should try to play God. Not in the sense of an idolatrous kind of assault against God, that, that I don't need God, I can be my own God. No, but I have to be shaped by God in order to answer these kinds of questions appropriately. So, in a way, with this issue of euthanasia, all of us are faced with trying to play God. When is it time for a person to die, and what is my role in that death? First of all, some definitions. Uh, It is a compound Greek word. Francis Bacon, a famous uh, British philosopher, died in 16... 26, I believe, was the first to come up with the word euthanasia. Literally, it means good death. Eu is the prefix there, is the Greek word for good. Thanasia is one of the Greek words for death. The other one is necros. What what Francis Bacon was talking about, and he had lived through a horrible time, by the way, uh, civil war and also the plague had ravaged uh, Europe, uh, that people died in misery and great pain. And so he thought, that it would be everybody's wish to die a life of ease, a euthanasia, and that's how he meant it. Well, that word gets picked up later on to describe this specific issue, that is, what would be my role in contributing to someone's death? All right, when we think about that, that is, a person is dying, what is my role in that person's death? Not just that person may be wanting to take his or her own life, but what is my contribution to that person's death? This whole issue of euthanasia, then, is what I do in contributing or assisting that person's death. Is it a good thing? Am I leading to this person's good death? Now, later on, I'll come back to this, but I mean, the difference between homicide and euthanasia is like you know, black and white. We all know that homicide is wrong. If I kill you murderously, what I'm saying, your life has no value. It's not a good death at all. So euthanasia is different than homicide, even though I actually may be contributing to someone's death. But the aim is that this death is a good death, not a homicidal end. Well, typically, we think there are two preconditions that have to be met when we think about this as an ethical issue. And that is that death is imminent. Now, that's hard to determine, isn't it? Uh, I have a, one of my dearest friends, uh, he wrote me this morning, and he thinks his mother will die today. She's well in her 90s, uh, but they've been waiting for this for several years now. But he thinks that she will die today. It's, a, it's been a long ordeal. Uh, in some ways, as John tells me, it's the right end, it's the glorious end, but they have been waiting for her to die for a couple of years. And he did the same thing with his father. Uh, interestingly, my parents, though, died rather abruptly. Uh, my father died of a heart attack at 56. 
rather abruptly. And my mother, uh, even though she had been ill for a number of years, though we didn't think she was dying and she died. But sometimes this lingers. We don't know when it's time for a person to die. But for it to be euthanasia, we have to have some sort of great conviction, some sort of information, some sort of way of knowing that death is imminent, whether it's today, a week from now, a month from now, whatever, that this person is on their last stage. They're not going to recover. All right, the second condition that needs to be there is that they're under some unbearable suffering. Now, all life is filled with suffering, no doubt about that. Uh, suffering alone is not a good precondition for euthanasia, but the level of suffering has to be unbearable. That is, the amount of physical pain or maybe even the emotional duress that a person has is so taxing, so innervating to a person that they're sort of losing their sense of self, losing their sense of being the center of their experience in the world because of this intense pain that they're going through. When those two conventions are met, we are usually faced then with this question of euthanasia. Because you could think of somebody not in pain, but maybe will die in six months or so, that it'd be far, far more difficult to say, okay, I'm going to contribute to your death. Or you could think of somebody in a moment of pain, but they're healthy enough to recover and live a life. That that would not be the issue of euthanasia. All right. Now, people make distinctions in trying to come to some understanding about uh, euthanasia. And here are two such distinctions that are made. The first group there, voluntary, involuntary, has to do with the person's wishes. The second uh, distinction there between passive and active has to do with what leads to that person's death. All right, a voluntary euthanasia would be someone who says, yes, it's time for me to die. I ask you to remove life support system or I ask you in some way to aid me in my dying. i let you know my intentions. Sometimes that's done with a living will. That is, a person will write the conditions of when they would want to die. And oftentimes they'll go into a coma or something like that will happen. And so I know what the person's intentions are. Involuntary is well, just like it says. That we don't know what the person's intentions are. Uh, the person may have said, whatever you do, don't take the respirator off. Don't remove me from the heart pump. Don't do that. Okay. If we did that, we'd obviously be working against the person's intentions. They are saying, I don't want to die. But most of the time, this refers to a person who, for whatever reason, cannot communicate what their intentions would be. They're in a coma, persistent vegetative state. And this is where families have to make judgments, really, really hard judgments, taxing judgments. Those are the kind that grieve you for the rest of your life. We had to make that about my father. My father slipped into a coma after his heart attack. He never let anybody know. In fact, he didn't think he was going to die. He had a heart attack, had surgery, had another heart attack, went into a coma. And so when the doctor came to us and said, well, there's no way your father's going to recover from this, just no way. And we waited for another sort of diagnosis on that. We wanted to be sure about that. And then we said, yes, he can go ahead and re we can remove the life support from him. And he died two days later. Now, my father never specified what that was, but we knew my father, we knew our father well enough. My mother was still alive at the time that this would have been his choice. And so I had actually, I, in some ways it was easy for me. I had no regrets about that choice. But I can see some instances in which, especially like with a child, you have to make that choice about a child. 
that would be taxing on anybody, a memory that would be hard to wrestle with. And that's what makes this such a difficult issue because we make choices just like what Osgenstein said. In some ways, we are forced, not that we really want to do this, nobody wants to bear this for other people's lives, but we are forced to make decisions and we are playing God in some ways. All right, when you put these four together, I mean, those distinctions, those uh, two distinctions together, we have four types of euthanasia. Now, it gets murky, I admit, uh, among these, and you can think of sometimes a person may be in one state and then move into another type. But generally, you can sort of get a hold of this by thinking there's what's called voluntary passive euthanasia. That is, I wish you die, I ask you to remove the life support from me. Okay, that's voluntary passive euthanasia. What happens in that is by asking you to relieve or to remove the life support, I'm letting nature take its course. I know that's a fuzzy phrase, but it's a I think an important phrase in the way in which we think about this issue because all of us have a natural destiny. If I live long enough, I'm going to die. <laughs> if you think about it, if I live long enough, my body will just die. Now, if I get run over, you know, driving home, that's a little premature, but I could see, you know, at 95 or so, maybe, I'm, I don't know how long I'd last, but it would be time for me to die. We all have a natural course of life. And something can happen, an accident, a disease, something could happen to me that would truncate that. And I can't extend it. I can't wish it away. I necessarily can't pray it away. My limit, my end is near, and I want that to come. And so I say, let me die my natural death. Okay, that's voluntary passive euthanasia. Okay, voluntary active euthanasia is that I ask you not just to allow me to die. I want you to do something that will lead to my death. That you become the cause of which the effect is my death. A direct cause. You could think of like injecting a lethal substance or suffocating or something like that. That would be active euthanasia, where you take the active role, which the effect would be my, would be my death. And I've asked you to do that. The other one is involuntary passive. That is, we do not know what the person's wishes are. And we, uh, we allow them to die. We remove the life support and they die. And four, involuntary active. That is, I don't know what the person wishes. For whatever reason, I don't. Maybe they're in so much pain they can't think clearly. Or maybe they are in a coma. Or maybe they're saying, what if you do, don't do this. But I then take it upon myself to be the active cause of their, their death. Now, of these four, which is the easiest to justify? And why? Which is the easiest of the four? Number one, wouldn't it be voluntary passive? Because like I said, it seems like the natural course of life. We settle with that. I think that's part of our maturing process to realize that we all have an end. I cannot live forever. Just like I read from that wonderful psalm, teach me to number my days that I may apply wisdom therein. I have an end to my life and therefore I need to live appropriately with that in mind. And be responsible for the number of my days that I had. And so this is easier and also it's, it's voluntary. You have told me what you wanted. It, you, I, I'm respecting your wishes. I'm some way honoring your autonomy, your right of self-determination. And so I'll let nature take its course. All right, of the four, which is the hardest 
the justified. And why? And why? Involuntary, active euthanasia. Well, it gets... <laughs> yes, that's a real deterrent, I admit. Um, uh, it, it gets close. Now, I'm going to put a little asterisk by this, because I think maybe there are some instances in which this is plausible, but it gets close to homicide. It gets close. Involuntary. That is, I don't know, or you told me not to, and then I become the active cause of your death. Now, uh, you can think of some instances in which you don't know what the person's intentions are, but you do become their active cause of death. You can think of this like the foxhole issues. That is, somebody has been you know, horribly maimed by shrapnel or a bomb or a bullet and they're just unconscious or in such riveting pain they cannot think straight and they're going to die. And so what do you do? You allow them to die in torment or do you, in a sense, contribute to their death? Oftentimes that is called mercy killing. Mercy killing. You can think of some rare instances where you don't necessarily know what the person's intentions are, but it might be the right instance to lead to their death. Now, there is a well-known ethical principle that's used. I, I find it helpful, though admit, admittedly, like with a lot of principles, there are some limitations to it, what's called double effect euthanasia. Double effect euthanasia. And that is where you or not intending death to be the aim of your actions, but your actions do lead to the person's death. Here would be an example. If you remember from the movie Saving Private Ryan that came out now, whatever, 15, 18 years ago, there's an incident in which, I think it's actually the medic, is uh, shot and he's dying and he's in just riveting pain, just torment, and they give him morphine and it's not enough, and he's just screaming in pain. They give him another shot of morphine. It's still not enough. But if they give him the third shot, it might be so much that it would stop his breathing and he would die. So here he was just being ravaged by this pain, and they give him the third shot of morphine knowing that he was going to die. The aim was to alleviate pain. It wasn't to kill, but death was the result of that. Now that's called double effect euthanasia. Some people use that principle as a good guideline to this. Like I said, I think it can be helpful because the aim of double effect euthanasia is not that your life is no longer valuable, but the pain that you're going through is so great that it's taking the value from your life. You know, for instance, um, I do think some people can be in such torment, such horrible, horrible pain, that it's almost like they're being tortured by that pain that the value of their life of being so diminished by the intensity of the pain that they cannot think of themselves as who they are within their world or, or cannot plan the next moment. They're just looking for any way to escape the level of pain. Just like, well, if you witness somebody being tortured, wouldn't you feel some sort of moral responsibility to stop the torturing? And I do think in these rarest of cases that it would be, as one would say, a merciful act to some way or another remove that torment from that person. But the aim would not be your life is no longer valuable because you are dying, but your aim would be this is an affirmation of your life by trying to remove that which is tormenting it. Just, you know, God spare us from those kinds of decisions. 
you might have had made such a decision as that. And there might be one in your future. Uh, but those, I think, can be understood as a merciful act. Where does hospice fall? Hospice, uh, some of you probably know a lot more about this than I do. They help people die. That's what they do. Um, Passive. passive. That's right. Most of the time it's voluntary passive. Yeah, they help people to die. But it's not as though, and, and this is why it's an ethical thing, it's not as though they are just waiting for the person to get out of the way. But hospice, just like what the word suggests, is hospitality. I love that word. In fact, our word hospital comes from the word hospice. And that comes from monasteries back in the 9th and 10th century, I believe, establishing these hospices, caring for people who are dying. Uh, tell you what, I'm going to chase a rabbit for just a second. Have any of you ever seen the famous um, uh, Colmar altarpiece by uh, Grunwald? I, I bet you have. The, in fact, I'll, I'll try to bring it next week. Uh, Grunwald was a medieval painter, and he painted a very uh, stark, probing, provocative picture of Christ on the cross, a very sort of white and dark, emaciated, incredible anguish. And it's actually part of an altarpiece just outside of Colmar, France. It's called the Eisenheim altarpiece. There was a monastery during the Middle Ages, during the 16th century, that specialized in treating people who had the plague, a certain form of the plague called St. Anthony's disease. That disease affected the nerve endings to the point that the people felt like they were burning, like they were on fire. It's, it's compared to St. Anthony, because St. Anthony, being one of the founders of Christian monasticism, said, was said to have been on fire for God. And so they connected this plague with this kind of spiritual model and so what these monks did to care for these people dying of this plague, they developed all kinds of, of uh, herbal treatments and washing and caring for them. But they also commissioned this very, very famous painter to depict Christ suffering on the cross for the sins of the world. That these people would be brought into the altar. And at various times of the year, they would fold back portions of the altarpiece with further scenes of Christ and the apostles and so on, that they would see on the cross God identifying with their pain, that what they were going through was not alien to God, that God's care was so powerful that God could actually feel what they were going through, kind of like art therapy. One of the greatest pieces of uh, all of European art was uh, an attempt to have hospice care care for those two dying. So the, the, I would look at it like this, that that... Whatever the condition may be, voluntary, passive, or so on, involuntary, whatever we do, it has to be an affirmation of the value of their life, not a recognition that they shouldn't live anymore. And why is that? Because we, as I say in the title, believe in a God who is the Lord of the living and of the dead, that my life here today is a gift and my life for eternity is a gift. And whatever action I choose towards somebody has to be a recognition that this is a gift what they have in this life and in eternity is a gift. Okay, Christian faith and euthanasia. Who are we? I want to go back to uh, the questions there about playing God. I mean, these are sort of God-like questions. Who are we? What are we to do? 
Well, there are many ways I think you can answer that question meaningfully, uh, but I think this is probably a, a good Christian way of understanding this. We are embodied soul, an embodied soul, open and drawn to God. All right, uh, I mean every word there. Embodied, that is, I, I don't have a body, I am a body. My body is not just an attachment to me, it's not an appendix, so to speak. I am my body. It gives me a place within the world. It was created by God. In fact, in the creation account, if you remember it properly, we're first dust. And then God breathes into us and we become living souls. It's not that a soul was stuck into this, but I am a living soul because I am also a body. And so I have to respect my body. I have to also see that as a gift. Regardless of what stage I'm in, my life as a bodily being is a gift that is given to me. Of course, our bodies grow old. They become pained, suffering, decrepit at times. But nonetheless, in that I am embodied, my life is still a gift for me. And I must uh, recognize in gratitude what God has enabled me to experience. That God created us in a way to share the bounty of a world that God made good. That we can eat of the great fruit and vegetables. We can breathe the air. We can see the great scenes. We can hear lovely words and music. We can experience through our senses this sort of richness that the world has made in the world. That God has made in creation. It's a, if you think about it, it's a great cornucopia of blessings. And I experience all that because I am embodied. But I'm also a soul, not just a machine. Of course, like I said, there are some physicians in here. You're scientists. You know what can cause a broken bone. You might know what causes a cardiac arrest. You might know what causes cancer and so on. All that follows chemical rules in some ways, law-like behavior within us. But I am more than just chemistry. I am more than just the law-like behavior that defines my body. I am a soul. What does that mean? It's a great word. I like the word, by the way. But I have to admit, it's an ambiguous word. Here is a way of understanding this. I admit, others might have even a more convincing answer what a soul is. A soul is the unique inner mystery of every individual. The unique. It's yours, not mine. You and I don't have the same soul. It is your identity. Is what makes you the distinct person within time and space, that individual that God made, rather than making somebody else God made you, you are your soul. But it is an inner mystery. I've been married... How many years have I been married? <laughs> uh, May 31st, 1980. I know that. I'll never forget it. All right. Uh, and, uh, and I understand my wife. We've had several... We've had two children. We've gone through a lot... We've experienced the up and the down, the thick and the thin, and so on. But there's still something about her that is inexplicable. It's not because, you know, she has bad hair day or something. But there's a mystery about her. And that will always be with her. Even if I live with her for another 50 years, there will always be that aspect about her that is inscrutable. Why? Because it's her soul. It's what is unique about her. It's her mystery. Each of us has this. That is, we have an inner mystery about us that should be respected. And that, too, is as much a gift as my body is. That, too, was created by God for me to be grateful for, that I have this inner mystery. That mystery, though, is aimed towards something, not towards itself, not just being totally content and satisfied with being the person I am, but being the person I am, 
I am aimed towards God. God has created us with an openness towards what one could call transcendence. I am created to be in relationship with people, to love people. I mean, how could we love God and love neighbors if we didn't have the capacity in our soul to reach out, to identify, to take on the characteristics of other people in our life, to become so identified with them that our identities are wrapped up with them? We're designed to do this. And we're designed to relate to God. That no matter what happens to us, no matter how egregiously taxing the experience may be upon our life, I still am designed to reach out towards God. I still have the capacity to experience God in my life. We're designed to do that. So to this question, who are we? We should look at each other this way. We're all here relatively healthy, nice-looking, successful, smart, all these great things. But one day we won't be so beautiful. One day we won't be so smart. We won't be in so much control of our life. And those people who do suffer long-term illness and sickness and maybe even coming to the point of the death, one of the hardest things for a person to let go of is control of their own lives. That's one of the hardest things to let go of. But we need to be informed. We need to be reacquainted with the, the very basic truth of our faith is that even when I have lost control of my life, even when I don't even know how to feed myself, I don't even know how to dress myself. Even when I cannot get out of bed, even when the pain is so great that I wonder if I can still make it, I am nonetheless in the presence of God. And God can be experienced there as well. All right, now, when to die? I, that's a hard question. When to die? There comes a time, just as the psalmist says, that we will die, three score and ten. And if we manage to live a little bit longer, we might suffer even more so for that. But there will come a time in which we will die. Our eternity is not expressed and formed by my life now. My eternity is expressed and formed by my relationship to God. So I do not have to keep this physical life, this bodily life, this temporal life, going on and on and on. Because my life continues even after it stops. My relationship to God is not dependent on the fact that I am embodied, but it's dependent on the fact that God graciously brings me into God's presence. So we need to see life as a gift and that there is a natural course of life and that one day I should welcome my death. Lord willing, I'll live a long life, a happy life, not to experience unspeakable loss in my life and I will come to an age in which it's time for me to die and I'll go to sleep and I will not wake up. Uh, one of my grandfathers died that way. He died full of years as the scriptures say of Abraham and he was sitting on his porch doing what he did for years and years in his retirement whittling a stick and he just died. I had another grandfather who died in great pain Great pain. It was a relief for him to finally die. Did one die well and the other one not die well? No, I think both died as saints. Because it's not that I can make my life meaningful as I approach my death. No, God makes my life meaningful whether I'm alive or dead. And we should always approach that. That no matter what may come, no matter how much sorrow even we experience and how much pain we may go through, it is still a gift because God is there 
we are able to relate and sense the holiness of God in such an experience as this. So, I want to sort of develop a test on this. Can we approach our deaths? Can we approach a family member's death? Can I sense some sense of responsibility towards my family member or a friend whose time it is to die as an act of unction? Unction. It's a religious term that refers to blessing, that refers to a sacrament. Now, we Protestants don't do this. Maybe some of you were reared in the tradition. I don't know. Maybe you still do it. There's in the Roman Catholic Church, in the Orthodox tradition, what's called extreme unction. And you know what that is? Have you ever been to in an experience in which you saw extreme unction? Tom, you ever seen that at a hospital where you are? You, you've seen? Okay. Sorry? Is it the last rite? That's right. It's the last rite. Um, a person is dying. The priest will come in and there will be a confession and there will be a special blessing with the, the, the cross, the oil, and it is a preparation for that person to move into eternity with God. That is not necessarily all darkness. It's not all loss. It's not all pain. It's, all, it's not all misery. But in fact, at this moment, there's a sacrament to be experienced just for that moment. I kind of like that idea, by the way that we can reserve and experience a certain sacramental presence of God at that particular moment. Whatever decision we make about somebody when, they're, when it's time for them to die, and Lord willing, it would always be voluntary passive. But as you know, it's not going to be. It won't always be that way. But whatever that may be, can I treat this moment as an unction? Is this the moment in which a special sense of God's holiness can be experienced? And I think that can be done tangibly. I shared this last week, and I, I, I think it's a good way to do it. We all ought to think of that last moment, whether we're contributing to that person's death or not, is a time to celebrate the communion with God. Not only figuratively, God's presence there, our next conscious moment will be in the presence of God, but also realistically, that is offering the blood and the body of Christ through the sacrament, through the communion, through the Eucharist at that moment. So can I treat this moment as a moment in which I would celebrate the Eucharist? Could I do that? And I think if we can, in our intuitions, in our commitments, in our love for them, in our understanding of the vast Christian witness that we all live in and are responsible for, I think we can say we do this to the glory of God. That I... And part of this decision of euthanizing my, God forbid, my children, or, or worse yet, you know, um, <clears throat> sorry, uh, can I treat this moment as a moment of Eucharist? Can I do that? And so I'm not telling you there's only one way to do this or that there's not, uh, there, that you should never do a certain sort of thing. Because I can think of those rare, rare moments in which even involuntary active euthanasia can be um, can be the right moment. But it can be that moment, though, because I experience the holiness of God. And so the test question would be, can I treat this moment as a moment of Eucharist? I've got a few other things I wanted to say in conclusion, but anybody have a comment or a question 
or an experience that you've gone through that sort of helps understand this? Yes. I have some friends or had used to work with in Oklahoma and they had a child that was quite you know, a teenager with cystic fibrosis and the child was very, very sick and in great distress. And they were and, and was not going to recover. And they were advised, and I'm not sure it was by a priest or it was by a doctor, that they needed to give that child permission to die. And said if you would do and they did. Oh, I mean, it wasn't an easy option, not an easy decision. And they, they finally, and I, don't, I, I wasn't there, so I don't know exactly what was said, but I know that they gave him permission. You know, we'll see you, we'll see you in heaven, and, and uh, don't keep fighting this. It's okay to go to sleep. Don't keep fighting this for good of us. And I don't know whether that would fall in a category of euthanasia or voluntary. I, I don't know. But anyway, that was a, just a, I don't know how it falls in this whole this whole, you know, diagram that you, designed, that you put up there, but um, I think it happened. I mean, I think there is some, it seems to me that there is, some, that individuals that are required to have some control over how long they, you know, they're going to make it to Christmas time. Right? You can think of some thought processes through these sort of troublesome moments that a, a Christian could never really accept. And one would be, because of what's happened to this person, their life is no longer worth affirming. No, we're all always committed to healing, always. Even when a person is dying, we're still committed to healing. Why? Because they, we believe they also have eternal life. We don't give up on a person's life, no matter what happens to them. So if I say, yes, let's go ahead and euthanize this child because they really are not worth being kept alive or really not worth our prayers, not really worth our commitments, that could never be a Christian option, never. Because we believe all life is a gift. Also, and this gets tough, we could never say, well, this person now is going to be really, really demanding on us. It's going to really, really restrict our lives. That would be hard to justify. I know families' lives can be taken over by the, by the horrible conditions that some people can get into, whether the very old or the very young. Their lives are changed permanently for that. But it would be very hard for us to justify that this person's life is no longer worth it to be kept alive, to try to heal them not only physically but spiritually, just because we are now being demanded to put up levels of responsibility that we never conceived before. That would be hard for us to justify. Why? Because this person is a living soul, an embodied soul, open to God. Yes? I intend to come to all of your classes. I wanted to know if you plan to code suicide in one of these lectures. Yes, I will talk about physician-assisted suicide, and part of that will deal with suicide itself. Right. Yeah. One, two, yes. Um, where does the spirit come in? You talked about body and soul. Is there a distinction between soul and spirit? Uh, yes, there is a distinction. Uh, the spirit is our capacity... I think, to relate to God intimately, personally. God created that capacity within us. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily like an arm or like a heart, but it's our total being's able uh, capability of being responsive to God. This is our spiritual nature. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and again, it's not because I make it work, not that I generate my own spirit or even take it away. I cannot take away my spirit. Now, I can hurt it, obviously. I can scar it. I can 
you know, corrupt it because of my sin, but my spirit is there because God is constantly in my life. We are designed to reach out to God. And that capacity that we have to reach out to God is our spiritual nature. Now, death does not end that. Just as death does not end my soul. Now, death may end my body, but as the Apostles' Creed says, we also believe in the resurrected body as well. Yes, Tom. Yeah. So, guys, it seems to me that your position, you've sort of staked out a position which is admirably sensitive to the range of human tragedy. But if you if you end up in a principled place to say mercy killing is sometimes okay, I guess I'm wondering if that's really containable. Um, I'm wondering about slippery slopes. I'm wondering about you know people for people who might be asked to help right. with that. Right. Um, you know, are there always going to be grounds to, to really draw a distinction between right. situations where that ought to be refused and situations where that is permitted? Right. Uh, Tom mentions this notion of a slippery slope. That is, if I could think of an instance in which, let's say, involuntary active euthanasia would be the proper thing to do. Once I justify that, well, then I slide down the slope and end up having to justify other forms of involuntary active euthanasia. That is always an issue. I have to admit that. However, though, I'm not doing that. That is, I wouldn't justify involuntary active euthanasia just as a way to get out of a horrible situation. What justifies it is that, is this the proper witness of God in this moment? Is it? It is the witness of God that determines the right or wrongness of the action. And so I would think that there could be some means or some part of that slope that I would slide down into that I could never say that. I couldn't. Remember when John Paul II died? I forget how long he was in a coma, but they allowed him to die, and they said that that was a testimony to his faith. They could, I guess, have done euthanasia on him. But they mentioned that as a testimony of faith. I would think that would be justified. But I could also think of these other instances as a way to give testimony to God. So, to use the metaphor, what would break the slide is that I could obviously think some forms of involuntary active euthanasia couldn't be done as a Eucharist. Couldn't be done in a state of unction. Couldn't be a testimony. It might be a testimony to me or to that person, but not to the Christian faith itself. Now again, I, I don't have a hard, fast rule on that one. I have to rely upon the integrity of our faith to help us answer this problem. What we share together because of what Christ has given us. Any other easy questions? <laughs> yes? Let's say I'm, I'm dying right now and I'm listening to everything you say. Is it... Do you... Would you feel a response? I'm hearing you, but I, I'm not buying it. I, mean, I'm, I feel like my life is empty and worthless. Do you feel a responsibility to convince me that my presence with God is enough? Yes, I do. Because again, just as it was not left up to me to determine my life as a gift, it's also not left up to me to determine my life is not worth living. It is our Christian responsibility to always communicate the gratitude of life even to those people 
who are dying and those who are suffering in their death as well. Their life is still valuable to God. I, it, I mean, it would be the bad sense of playing God to come up, okay, you're depressed, your life is not worth living, I'm going to take it. I can't do that. Not as a Christian. You're depressed, you feel like your life is not worth living. But here, let me show you this painting of Christ on the cross. This is how much your life is worth. This is how much God is still with you, even though you cannot find a shred of hope. God, nonetheless, is still in your life. That's my responsibility as a Christian. I know our time is up. Some of you need to go into the 11 o'clock service. Lord bless you, and I will see you hopefully next uh, Sunday, and we'll talk about, uh, we'll probably talk about suicide and physician-assisted suicide as well. All right, go in peace.